Ross, I know you're pissed at me, but we have to talk about this. Uh, actually, uh, we don't. I'm gonna go. No, come on, look, Ross, we have to get past this. Give me the bag. No, look, I, I don't know what else to do. I said I'm sorry. Joey. Now, now you should scream at me or, or, or curse me or hit me. I, I'm not gonna hit you. Why not? You'll feel better. I'll feel better. And you know you want to? I can see it in your eyes. No, I don't. A little bit. No. A little bit. No. A little bit more. No, hit me. Give me the bag. Hit me. Joey, give me the bag. Hit me. Joe, I'm hit not me. kidding. Hit me. No. Hit me, hit me, hit me, hit me. on the way to the hospital. Good, good, yeah, maybe while we're there, they can check your reflexes. <laughs> Oops. Hello, Storyline. It's good to be together. Welcome to this edition of Story Online. And this is week three of a series of talks that we're doing on forgiveness. Now, originally we were hoping that these would be three weeks in a row, but um, to be honest, because of our hope to do some outdoor gatherings, uh, as I film this, I really have no idea if these three talks are being aired three weeks in a row. Probably not. Uh, and because of that, I, I wanna go back and review the forgiveness part one and forgiveness part two where we've been so far with this. So here's some of the things that we've covered already when it comes to this very important topic of forgiveness. So we believe that Jesus knew what he was doing in helping people to find faith and to form faith in the grace of God. And in doing so, he continually frustrated the religious establishment. He confounded the political elite and challenged everyone in between with this big and beautiful view of God and vision for life. And Storyline is a community that's on a mission to experience, enjoy, and embody Jesus's view of God and vision for life, and to extend it out into the world. In real life settings, Jesus took on real life issues in a way that made real life come to life. And our hope and prayer is that together, with God's guidance and help, we will see the same thing happen here in our community, in us, but also through us. So we gather together, and when we do gather together, uh, we do so to consider how Jesus can reframe our view of God and like recast our vision for life. And this morning, we're hoping to do that by exploring this very real, very important issue, once again, of forgiveness. So the first thing that we learned uh, in part one um, was that forgiveness changes our relationship with God. And the way, the way we said it, I want something like this. God hates sin because he loves us and sin is killing us. And so Jesus came to us to die for us, as in because of us, but also if we'll allow him instead of us. And, and we use the analogy that we are like children who run away from God and run out into the street, if you will, and God is pleading with us to come back to him. But 
he is not going to strip us of our free will. And that means he will not stop us from running away, nor will he run after us in such a way where he kidnaps us and drags us back into the safety of playing in the yard. So in an effort to demonstrate what happens, to show us the natural consequences of living apart from God, he sent his son, Jesus, out into the street to step in front of the car that was going to hit us. That is what's happening on the cross. God is simultaneously demonstrating how much he loves us and how detrimental, dangerous, and ultimately how deadly it is to live without him. The forgiveness of God on the cross is an important but also deep and difficult topic. It's super mysterious. No one fully understands it. And here's the good news. No one has to. What we do need for our sake is to live with this trust that in spite of all that we have done and all the ways that we have been a villain and broken hearts, we're forgiven. And no matter what has been done to us, all the ways that we have been a victim with broken hearts, we are accepted. Because on the cross, Jesus volunteered his broken heart as a peace offering, a a way to stop the madness and unleash the grace of God. We can have that acceptance simply by accepting it. We read an amazing account of a paralyzed man who is brought to Jesus for healing, and instead Jesus offers him forgiveness. It is Jesus saying to him, and to all of us really, no matter what we think our biggest need in life is, it all begins with forgiveness. That's the start of it all. And we're invited to repent, to accept our acceptance and surrender our lives back to the God that has proven with his own life that he is not opposed to us, mad at us, disappointed with us. He is, in fact, on our side. In part two of our series, we discovered how forgiveness changes our relationship with ourselves. We looked at how all of human history in so much Uh, of our personal story is one long, complicated, and often painful attempt to earn our own acceptance, to establish our own identity, to create our own identity, if you will, to forge our own purpose. And so we strive and sweat and compete all in a futile effort to prove our worth, to find a way to be accepted and approved of, not just by others, but also by ourselves. And We read the story of a woman caught on that treadmill of anxiety and in search of love and security and identity, she was caught in the act of adultery and brought before Jesus to be stoned publicly. And stoning, by the way, was not just a horribly painful way to die. It was also very symbolic. You see, the ancient Jews believed that God gave them their land as a down payment on his love, like proof of his, that his grace is with them. So stoning was the act of your friends, neighbors, and family, literally picking up pieces of the promise and hurling them at you until you died. It's an absolute and total rejection. So before she gets her act together, before she confesses, before she shows any signs of faith or repentance, Jesus refuses to do that. He refuses to pick up the promise of God and throw it at her. He refuses to condemn her. 
and the crowd is stunned. And we, are, and we are witnessing in that story the heart of God in action. He loves us as we are. He accepts us at our worst. He forgives us before we ask. That changes our relationship with ourselves and our lives because that means we no longer have anything to hide. We have nothing to prove, nothing to fear, and nothing to lose. When we are paralyzed by our separation from God and our hopes and dreams, when we are ashamed because we've been exposed, God doesn't condemn us. He loves us and accepts us. That is the gospel of grace. There's nothing we have to do except accept our acceptance and receive our forgiveness. I love this vision of God that Jesus gives us because God doesn't live with unforgiveness in his heart. That, that's what it means. God does not live with unforgiveness in his heart. For him, it's finished. One way to think about it that's, that's helpful for me is because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, when it comes to us and God, the only one doing the rejecting, the judging, and excluding is us. So when we repent, when we receive our forgiveness, when we accept our acceptance, we begin to unlock a deep peace about life. Like it's, it's just a big, huge relief because we no longer see ourselves as bad or damaged people. In fact, we no longer think about ourselves that much at all. See, living with this sense of divine humility radically reorients our relationship with ourselves. We move from being self-involved to self-forgetful. And it means that life is no longer an anxiety-ridden proving ground. It's an open, joyful opportunity to embody and extend the love, acceptance, forgiveness, the grace of God. Which brings us to where we're headed this morning in part three of this series on forgiveness. And that is that forgiveness changes our relationship with others. When I was in fifth grade, I was in love with Lisa Phillips. I mean, head over heels in love with Lisa Phillips. There, there was no doubt in my mind that she and I were meant for each other. She was beautiful, and besides just being super good looking, she was the best girl dodgeball player in our class. I mean, what more could you ask for, right? So, I mean, perfect wife material. And one day, uh, my friend Brian Tilly comes to me and he asks, so who do you like? And so in the strictest of confidence, in fact, if memory serves, it was a pinky swear, I told him it was Lisa Phillips. And, you know, I knew he was the only one who knew about this until the next day. When I walked into class and my school picture and Lisa's were taped to the blackboard with a big heart drawn around both of them together, I was devastated, like totally betrayed, wanted to run away and never come back. But first, I wanted to punch Brian Tilly in the face. This was unforgivable. One of the things I love about the Bible is how brutally honest it is. I mean, we hear these beautiful and comforting quotations, and, and, and we might be tempted to think that the entire Bible is filled with stuff like, Yea, though I walk through the valley of sh the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Or, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. 
And there's no doubt that there are inspiring, comforting, and beautiful words in the Bible. But more than anything, the Bible is a real story about real people, including Jesus' first followers. Descriptions of them in Sunday school, depictions like uh, in stained glass as saints with men, you know, with halos over their heads are just dead wrong. The Bible shows them to be childish, petty, selfish, argumentative, vengeful. Once when rejected by a village, Jesus' disciples asked Jesus for permission to pray to bring the wrath of God down on everyone in the village. Jesus was like, what? Another time, Jesus caught them debating which one of them was the greatest. Like, once a few of them came to Jesus and secretly asked, hey, Jesus, you know, when you finally take over, can we be like your number one and number two guys? They weren't saints. They were like me, and they were like you, and they were like Brian Tilly. They spent years living together in this kind of raw realness, so it should be no surprise that the topic of forgiveness came up. The Bible says that Peter, one of Jesus' first followers, came to him and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. This is Jesus saying, there's no limit to forgiveness, Peter. You just keep on offering it. Now, before we go any further, I want to make sure that we understand that Jesus' Jesus's instructions here, his command to forgive one another, does not mean that we should put ourselves into situations where people will continually harm us, where we will be mistreated or abused. And here's why. It's not just because it's bad for us. It's also bad for the person who's mistreating us. Still, it's important for our sake that we forgive, even unrepentant offenders. Countless psychological studies have proven now, beyond a shadow of a doubt, over and over again, that living with anger, resentment, bitterness, with unforgiveness, is harmful to us. So forgiveness is not an issue of allowing ourselves to be used and abused over and over again. It's ultimately an issue of our own well-being and a basic choice that we have to make. Ted, I lied to you. I hired you because I wanted this team to lose. I wanted you to fail. And I sabotaged you every chance I've had. This club is all that Rupert has ever cared about, and I wanted to destroy it. To cause him as much pain and suffering as he has caused me. And I didn't care who I used or who I hurt. All you good people just trying to make a difference. Ted, I'm so sorry. If you want to quit or call the press, I'll completely understand. I forgive you. You what? Why? Divorce is hard. And it doesn't matter if you're the one leaving or if you're the one who got left. It makes folks do crazy things. Hell, I'm coaching soccer, for heaven's sake. <laughs> In London. <laughs> I mean, that's nuts. <laughs> 
Sally, you and me. We're okay. Come on, just shake this hand. My arm's starting to get... <laughs> you know, I think that if you care about someone and you got a little love in your heart, there ain't nothing you can't get through together. You know what I'm saying? So how do we choose forgiveness over revenge and its manifestations of anger, bitterness, passive aggressiveness, and resentment? Well, the Bible makes it pretty clear and straightforward. It simply says, forgive as you have been forgiven. Simple, but not easy. Which makes our question really, how have we been forgiven? And what we see in the life of Jesus is, we have all been forgiven at our worst, before we ask, before we repent, over and over again, at great cost to the forgiver. So guess what? To forgive as we have been, the way that we have been forgiven, means we are to forgive others at their worst, before they ask, before they change or stop or even realize that, they've, that they're hurting us and to do it over and over again. Now, again, that doesn't mean being a doormat. It doesn't mean we don't confront people with their harmful behavior or at times remove ourselves from relationships that are abusive. It, it simply means that we recognize that unforgiveness is detrimental to us that forgiving others does not have to be dependent on their remorse or repentance. We don't have to live with unforgiveness in our heart. God doesn't, and we shouldn't have to. Because all of this begins by recognizing that we too require forgiveness. And it was offered to us at our worst before we asked, before we turned it all around. The point is, their lack of repentance can only trap us in bitterness and resentment if we let it. And the path to freedom is offering forgiveness because our lives are based upon the forgiveness God has already offered us. Now, we don't have to live with this unforgiveness in our heart. How big of a deal is this in our life? How detrimental is it for us to live this way if, if we do have unforgiveness in our life? Well, Jesus put it this way. The way you forgive is how you will be forgiven. <laughs> Yikes, now that sounds pretty harsh. But his point is that unforgiveness hurts our lives so much. It's so bad for us. Jesus is telling those of us who have repented, those who have accepted our acceptance and received our forgiveness and surrendered our life to him, that we have to do it. We have to forgive. It's not optional. To refuse to forgive others means we are in some way or another actually seeking revenge. And it's impossible for the human soul to flourish this way. If we opt for unforgiveness, it comes at a cost we cannot pay. 
One of the reasons we find it so difficult to forgive is to do so, we must admit that we're all in the same boat, that we're all in need of forgiveness. One writer put it this way, often what holds us back from forgiving is the sweet sense of superiority that comes from being a victim. <laughs> Yikes, it's a little too close to home for me. Now see if this ring true, rings true for you. When we're wronged, there is this inner dialogue that at least I go through, it's something like this. Well, man, you know, I'm certainly not perfect. I've made many, many mistakes, but I would never do that to somebody. See, we tend to be quick to forgive others of the kinds of wrongs that we tend to commit. Like if you were to eat my ice cream, I'm quick to forgive you for that because, well, guess what? <laughs> right, the day, that day's coming when I'm gonna eat yours. I, I'm most certainly going to at least try, but criticize my efforts to help and look out. I would never do that to you. That, therefore, is unforgivable. To forgive as we have been forgiven means we are trying to live our life based on the gospel of God's grace. And this does two things that seem paradoxical, even contradictory, and it does it simultaneously. On the one hand, the gospel of grace brings us low. It like says to each and every person, you are more messed up than you will ever dare to admit. But on the other hand, it says, you are more loved than you will ever dare to imagine. It says both things at the same time. We are all in that boat with this desperate need for forgiveness right along with the, with the person who's harmed us. And for us to deny that forgiveness to others is not a measure of how bad they are. It's just an indication of how broken we remain, of how much our world is still governed by what we can prove, what we can earn, and what we can achieve. It is a graceless economy that we're trapped in when we live that way. And it's one in which we will all eventually go broke. You see, unforgiveness is watered, nurtured, fertilized in the superior soul. Unforgiveness is a mirror into our own soul. Living with unforgiveness is a refusal to offer to others that which we ourselves desperately need. And this is why and how Jesus can say, those who are forgiven little, love little. The implication being that those who are forgiven much and know it have a deeper capacity to love much. And this is why living with a strong sense that we both need more forgiveness than we can ever imagine, but we are more loved and accepted and, and, and more forgiven, if you will, than we could ever dream, inspires a new way of living and a new way of loving. And it all begins with receiving our forgiveness and then freely sharing it with those in our life. This kind of divine love and grace can change the world and set us free. I'd like to close this series with one last story and one that I've been reminded of all too often in the recent civil unrest that we've seen in our cities, especially this summer. 
it's been over 25 years since the LA riots. Um, they're also known as the Rodney King riots. And this, this happened in 1992. And I actually lived in LA at the time. One block, uh, I lived on Venice Boulevard, one block north of what's considered um, South Central at the time. And our apartment was facing south into South Central Los Angeles. And when those riots started, we barricaded ourselves in our apartment for three days. I mean, it was constant sirens, alarms, broken glass, helicopters, gunshots, plumes of smoke. It honestly felt like a war zone. 50 people dead, 2,000 injured, 11,000 arrests, over $1 billion in damage, thousands of buildings burned, thousands. And when people say that the rioting that happened this last summer was worse than Los Angeles in 92, they're very, very wrong. It's not even close. I watched Los Angeles burn for three days. They literally had to call in the Marines to put an end to it. About a week after it was over, the Young Life team that I was a part of took a group of high school kids into one of the hardest hit neighborhoods to help with the cleanup. And in my car was Luigi, Zirak, Peter, and Chris. And as we drove, through these neighborhoods, it was like stunned silence. Like we were driving past burned out cars, burned down buildings everywhere. Broken glass, still all over the place. I've never seen anything like it. I remember fighting back tears as we took it all in. And finally, Luigi broke the silence and he said, I hate white people. It was kind of awkward. And then Luigi remembered, and he goes, not you, G-Money, you're not white. <laughs> and I looked right at him, and I said, yeah, Luigi, I am. And it was one of those moments, like the kind you just don't forget. He said, well, I, I guess I don't hate them all. See, we don't have time to go into all the details here, and, and there are two sides to every story. And I'm not excusing anyone of anything, but I knew enough of Luigi's story and his experience to know that when an all-white jury acquitted four white cops of all wrongdoing in the beating of Rodney King, these four African-American teenage boys in my car had lots of reasons for revenge, to cast blame, and to give in to the temptation of righteous indignation and victimhood and unforgiveness. And they were faced with the choice, as we all are. Forgive and move forward in some sense of freedom or stew in the slavery of being a victim. And here they were, side by side with me, their white friend, trying to be a part of the solution. They chose forgiveness in part because a community of grace chose to love them to embody and extend the acceptance and forgiveness of God, which gave them the freedom to accept it and extend it to themselves and to others.
After Jesus was crucified, Peter, the same guy who once came to Jesus exasperated with his friends, wanting to know how many times he was required to forgive before he could stop, you know, give up and live with self-righteous superiority and resentment and bitterness and victimhood, the same Peter described what repenting, accepting our acceptance, receiving our forgiveness, and living by faith in the grace of God looks like. He put it this way. He wrote, love each other as if your life depended on it. Love makes up for practically anything. Another translation reads, love covers over a multitude of sins. See, ultimately, this is what forgiveness is. It's love. A love that comes first. A love that doesn't wait a love that gives up its very life to save the one, killing it. This love, the love of God, if we'll accept it, changes our relationship with him. It changes our relationships with ourselves. And if we'll allow it, forgiveness as we are, at our worst, before we ask, over and over again, that can flow through us and the world can change. This is why forgiveness, just like we've said in these three talks, is the place to start, it's the heart of the matter, and it's the source of true freedom. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time to be together like this. I, I pray for our all of those who feel isolated and alone in this time, I pray that they would sense your presence in their life. I pray that you would remind us of one another and that we could reach out in some way to, to um, connect with each other, to remind one another that um, we are all loved, that we belong, uh, to remind one another of living in the wisdom of accepted, accepting our acceptance. And we thank you so much for coming to us to forgive us, to allow us to live in that forgiveness and to extend it. I pray that we would um, see and experience how that changes our relationship with you, with ourselves, and with everyone in our lives. As we log off today, I pray that you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us, folks. I hope to see you soon.